Thank you, Piper. Soon to be married. Just a little editorial comment there. Sometimes I wonder if it's my outside voice that says these things. <laughs> well, we're in, nearing the end of Lent. Next week, starting next Sunday, a week from today, begins Holy Week. Those of you that come from a higher church background know what I'm talking about when I talk about Holy Week. I will not be here next week. I leave Friday for Haiti. So I'd ask you to pray. Uh, pray for me while I'm gone. There uh, are, I don't know, hundreds of pastors. It's the third pastoral conference I've done there in Haiti. And he said they have, they're expecting around 400 pastors. And so um, I'll be there to teach. And, and several of you have asked, is it safe to be there? Uh, yeah, it's safe for me. I've already had COVID. So <laughs> they're actually, their uh, sanctuary is about four to six times the size of ours. So it's massive. So they have lots of space. And um, they're very excited. All of a sudden, I'm starting to get texts and Facebook messages and emails. And they're, they're really excited to be able to come out again. They're now allowed and learn. So uh, pray for me next week. But next Sunday, we're going to be talking, um, we're starting Holy Week. This week, we're going to talk about Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I know that's the last thing he said before he died. You know, one, the one saying we haven't talked about is um, it is finished. And we're postponing that one until next week because next week is Palm Sunday. That kicks off Holy Week. And uh, it is finished as a time of celebration. So we're going to circle back and talk about that next Sunday. And then Holy Week, if you have time and uh, you're interested, I'd really encourage you to come to Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday. Monday, Thursday comes from the Latin term to basically give a mandate or a command, okay? And uh, that's the night, Thursday night, where he met with the disciples for the last time. Right after that, on Thursday evening, he was betrayed and spent all night in uh, the trials and was crucified at 9 o'clock the next morning. So this is where he gave the famous command, the mandate, a new commandment, a new mandate I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. And this is while he was washing their feet. So the final words of Jesus occur, and that's Monday, Thursday. So we celebrate that. It's about a 30-minute service here. And then if you choose to stay after that, we will have communion. And if you choose to, we'll also have foot washing. We do that every year. If you've never done it, it's, it's worth coming. And, um, and just washing each other's feet. It's really a very enjoyable time. Friday night, is, uh, he's now off the cross. Next, not this Friday, but a week from this Friday. He's off the cross and in the grave. And that's a very somber, quiet time. So we do a good Friday, again, about 30 minutes. And then we have Resurrection Sunday, uh, Easter Sunday, where we jump up and down and celebrate. Whoo, we're finally done with standing at the foot of the cross. So remember where we've come. The, the name of the series is Joining Jesus Outside the Camp. And we were in Leviticus, so we finished Leviticus 13 and 14, where the defiled and sick person has to go outside the camp. And um, to come back in the camp, they have to be pronounced clean by the priest, offer a sacrifice. That's a time of rejoicing when they come back together with their people. And then they go into the tabernacle to offer another sacrifice to reconnect with the Lord. And so Jesus, Hebrews 13 tells us, had to go outside the camp to suffer uh, and atone for our sin. Let us, therefore, it says, go outside the camp and bear the disgrace that he bore. So to go outside the camp with Jesus, all through Lent, we've been standing at the foot of the cross. And so 
the, uh, and listening to his seven words. He said seven things on the cross. So the crucifixion, the period on the cross is about six hours. Mark tells us they hung him up at nine o'clock in the morning. And Luke tells us that he dies at three o'clock. So it's about uh, six hours that he's hanging there. Everybody is there. It's a spectacle, if you will. In fact, at the very end of the passage that she read today, it said, uh, when all the people who had gathered to witness the sight, that's the word for the spectacle, to watch a spectacle. So remember, the crucifixion was always done in populated places, and people came to watch. Where's our popcorn? You know, that kind of thing. They did it as a deterrent, So, but you don't want to be the one hanging up on the cross. <clears throat> so Jesus has been shamed. He's hanging up on the cross, and he said seven things. We've looked at a bunch of them up until now. Okay, We've looked at, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And here we have the example of life. Life comes through forgiveness. So he's on the cross, and he looks out at all these people, and it says the soldiers were mocking him, the people were mocking him, the Jewish leadership were mocking him. Even one of the criminals was mocking him. And, um, and he looks out at these people, very similar to what Stephen said in Acts 8. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I, I remember this verse whenever I'm out talking to people, bars, coffee shops, wherever I happen to be. And, uh, and most of the time, I think I've told you that in uh, my almost eight years here now, I've only come across one person that doesn't have a faith background. And yet only, only uh, uh, 15% of our um, county professes to be either Catholic or Protestant. Only 9%, um, 7%, somewhere in there for Protestants. So all these people in our county, I thought I'd come up here and it'd be an evangelistic uh, time out. It's not. It's a recovery time. They all, have, they all have a faith background. They just walked away. And so they have formed a stereotype. And I remember Jesus' words, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. And see, that's what happens with all your friends and neighbors. They have a stereotype. Maybe it's come from the uh, mainline media. Maybe it's come from social media. Maybe it's come from a bad experience in a church. Who knows where it comes from? Everybody's different. But they've all framed in their mind a stereotype. Uh, and that's what they're interacting with. They don't really know the Jesus that we know. So whenever I get the, uh, you know, the roll the eyes, oh, you're a pastor, oh, you're a Christian type of thing, I just remember they don't know who he is, which makes it fun to start the conversation. And uh, slowly as they warm up, they become more and more curious. So who is this? Who is this guy? Right? And so that's where that comes from. So we talked about, Father, forgive them. That's one of the things he said. Today you'll be in merit with me in paradise. He said that to the criminal. Um, <clears throat> the one mocked him, and the other one says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And, uh, and he didn't say that. So the criminal was asking in the future, when you establish your kingdom, remember me. And he said, well, today. You don't have to wait till the future. Today. In just a few short hours, we're both going to be dead. We'll be together in paradise. It's hope, Right? A uh, woman, here is your son. So he says one of the last things he did was take took care of his mother before he died. That was his responsibility. Um, and said to hand her off to the, uh, gospel, uh, the disciple whom he loved. I think that's uh, the uh, disciple John. Then he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There he went through the alone period, which you've all gone through, that time of uh, God's quiet. God didn't abandon him. He didn't, he didn't split the Trinity or any of that. He's just quiet. And we've all had to go through times of quiet where the Lord allows us to demonstrate and express and find out that our faith is... How would you know your faith is real if it's never tested? How would you know? 
If it's never tested, it's only academic. It's only theoretical. It's only conceptual. It's through the testing that your faith becomes very alive and generative. And, and so, so Jesus is one of the things that he had to go through was that alone time, that quiet time, where God is standing there, I think proud as can be, just zipping it. said, let Jesus figure it out. I think what he's saying, same thing he said to Job is, just watch. Watch my son. Watch what he does. It's what he does when we're quiet, when he's quiet in our lives. I am thirsty. We looked at that, right? I am thirsty. He said it in a very loud voice. Um, Or he said it to fulfill scripture, I mean. I'm thirsty. And there we went back to Psalm 69. So we've looked at Psalm 22. Matthew follows Psalm 22. Then we looked at Psalm 69. John follows Psalm 69. We're going to look at another Psalm today. And so I've said all along that, especially when we're in Leviticus, that Leviticus, remember, is the blueprint for the new covenant. Uh, A blueprint is just a piece of paper. It takes the Holy Spirit to build the house that, uh, that was envisioned in Leviticus. And so the theology of the Old Testament is captured in Leviticus. And then all the wisdom literature, the Psalms and the Proverbs, they give us all the poetry to understand it. So Jesus keeps quoting Psalms, and he does it again today. Father, into my hands, uh, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's a quote from a psalm. So the, uh, all of these things, we're talked, we've talked about life, hope, love, right, empathy, um, Humanity. We've talked about all that through his sayings. The seven words of Jesus capture our theology, and they capture the theology of Leviticus, what God intended all along. And so what happened during these six hours when we're standing outside the camp at the foot of the cross listening to these things? What we're doing is understanding who, are, who we are and who God is and what we truly believe. So we're getting near the end of that time. He's about to die today, actually. And um, we're going to reflect on what in the world was he doing by saying this. And why did he say Jesus called out with a loud voice? There's a clue. Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. He wanted everybody to hear it. Okay? Most of us, when we go through these trials, our struggles are internal. We don't walk around yelling out. Things like that, do we? And so, but he was doing it for a purpose, and we're going to take a look at what that is. So let's take a look at the clues. The first one is darkness. That's the first thing we notice in uh, verse 44. It was now about noon, and darkness covered the whole land. You know, it doesn't say the whole earth. It says the whole land until 3 in the afternoon. This was a regional thing, I believe. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Wow, there's a lot just right in these verses right here. So the darkness lasted three hours. So he's put on the cross, Mark said at nine, and at noon, <clears throat> everything turned dark for three hours. And during these three hours is when this, this stuff happened. So the reason t- given for the darkness, no, it does, it's not an um, eclipse, it's not clouds. No, Luke tells us very clearly the sun failed. Stop shining. That's the NIV. It failed. That's the actual language. It failed to perform its responsibility. And there's a reason for that, I think. We'll see in just a minute. The remarkable thing about this is that all this happened before Jesus died. Now, back in chapter 22, this will not be up on the screen. uh, In verse 52, he's talking to the chief priests. 
Uh, Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come to him, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? So this is right after the Last Supper. It's in the middle of the night. Well, not the middle of the night, early night. And they've come to arrest him, and that's his response. Every day, he says, I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me, but this is your hour. This is your hour when darkness reigns. So he has his hour when life is given, and they have their hour when darkness reigns. So Luke is helping us to see, I think, that this is the point at which the greatest struggle took place. This is the end of his life. And to quote one scholar, I just loved it, he's still in the the grip of satanic forces. He's still in the grip of satanic forces. This is the final three hours before he dies, and it's dark. It's very ironic because if you go back to Luke chapter 1, in Zechariah, he's the father of John the Baptist, when, his, uh, when he sings his song about his son, here's what he says in verse 76. I'll start there. And you, my child, talking about John the Baptist, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, boy, that great language, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. We'll circle back at the end and talk about peace. Those living in darkness. So it's one of the great ironies of Scripture that the one who brought light to those in darkness now sits in darkness. This is the final struggle. We'll see in a minute. He has no control over it. All he can do is endure it and live out his faith. Well, he had control. He was Jesus. He could have at any point ended it. But that was the whole temptation, was to live as God. And he wanted to endure it the way we endure it, because when we go through darkness, we have no control. Not over the darkness. All we have control over is our own heart. And so, he doesn't stop it. So that's the first clue. Darkness is everywhere. The second clue is the temple curtain. It's during um, the... Let me go to Hebrews. Hebrews 9 talks about the temple and the curtain that's there. Hebrews 9 gives us a picture. It says, Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand. And we talked about this at the end of Exodus, at the beginning of Leviticus, when they set up the tabernacle. In the first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain, which I believe is the one Luke is referring to, was a room called the most holy place. So this curtain that's torn in two is separating the holy place from the most holy place. When we finish Lent and Resurrection Sunday, we're going right back into Easter. Guess what's almost next? The Day of Atonement. And we're going to talk in detail about only the high priest was allowed to go in. And now, during this time, this thing is torn in two. Okay? 
It's in a passive voice. It didn't say anybody tore it. And that, that means that God is doing his thing. It was God's doing. Access is now granted. And it had never been granted before directly into the Lord's presence, into God the Father's presence. Only the high priest was allowed to go into that room. Now, the amazing thing is no one at the crucifixion, they're all standing out there at this spectacle. No one knew that on the other side of the temple wall, this curtain is tearing. He doesn't tell us how that made it into the story. I imagine the priests were pretty amazed. Can you imagine? Talk about, uh, talk about challenging your faith. This big temple is a hand width apart, thick, rips in two. Okay, they'd never even been in there. They weren't allowed to see it. Only the high priest was allowed to see it once a year. And here they have access all of a sudden to see it. So I think Luke is telling us that the satanic struggle that's been going on all through Jesus' life and now is at the climax, at the maximum. It's at the high point. It's now ended. And uh, this represents the final test of Jesus' faith. This is at the point that Jesus cries out, into your hands, I commit my spirit. This is at the point. It's over. So you're, next we're going to look at the it is finished. He fulfilled his mission. And now we're looking at it's completed. His life is completed. And he endured the suffering and the temptation and the great struggle. You see, God cry, triumph. That's what this torn veil tells us. Not only did God triumph, but so did Jesus. Just like the story of Job and many others, God triumphed. And so did Job. And God blessed him because of it. Okay, the third clue is the language of Father. This is now the third time that he addresses God as Father uh, in his prayers in Luke. Luke 22, Father, if you are willing. This is after he's now in the garden getting ready to be arrested. Father, if you are willing, uh, take this cup from me. Not, but not my will. Your will be done. The second one is Luke 23, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And the third one is now into your hands, Father. I commit my spirit. What you have to understand here is that it was highly unusual for Jews to address God as Father. But this was actually normal for Jesus. And that irritated and got the Jewish leadership very angry because he was claiming intimacy with God, which nobody claimed. Okay? And so they didn't like it one bit, but that's how he did it. So... What we see here is by using the language of Father, um, his prayer is demonstrating a really high level of intimacy. God truly is his Father. It's a term of deep respect. It's a term of intimacy. Okay? It's interesting in the adoption um, practices of the of this part time in history, the first century, uh, they only adopted adults. We don't have any record that I know of of them adopting children. Because in a shame and honor context, you don't know what a child's character is going to be like. And so if you adopt a child and they turn out to be, uh, you know, a ragamuffin, then it's going to dishonor your family. And so they would only adopt adults. And typically it was used to, maybe you had a servant who was loyal, and so you either adopted him or his child into your family. So you would go down and you would say, um, I, I would like to adopt this servant of mine. And the judge would say, do you want to be adopted? And the servant, of course, is going to say, yes. This is a picture, by the way, Paul uses of coming to Christ. 
you say yes. And he said, you know, with the gavel. And he says, uh, you're now belong to his family. And the, the uh, father would turn to the servant and say, welcome, my son. And the son and the father would turn to him and say, Abba, Aramaic term, uh, thank you, father. And all of a sudden now they're natural. He belongs to the family. And so this is a deeper a, 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 a term of deep intimacy. And so once again, we have a model Instead of trying to save himself, remember how the crowd cried out? He saved others, let him save himself. It's one of the temptations. Instead of trying to save himself, he's entrusting himself completely into the hands of his father in the midst of his greatest struggle. For whom? You. You. It's an amazing story. No religion has this. No other religion. Okay. Then we have another clue. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now we're going to go back to Psalm 31. We read some of Psalm 31 a few weeks ago. Matthew uses Psalm 22, John uses Psalm 69, Luke uses Psalm 31. I'm just going to read the first five verses. I believe this was written by David. In you, Lord, and there's the proper name of God, the intimate, familiar name of God. In you, Yahweh, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. Turn your ear to me. Come quickly to my rescue. Be my rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me. Since you are my rock and my fortress, for the sake of your name, lead and guide me. You see the picture of this fortress? A place to hide that's safe. Keep me free from the trap that is set for me. For you are my refuge into your life, into your hands. I commit my spirit Deliver me, Lord, there's that wonderful name of God, Lord, my faithful God. And so this is a uh, psalm is a hymn of trust. You see, David demonstrates in the midst of deep sorrow and near death, because a little bit later in the psalm, he says, um, they're trying to take my life. If you don't protect me, I will die. I will die. Things over which no one has control. In the middle of this distress, we don't know what it is, but if you're familiar with the life of David, uh, from the time he was anointed, they chased him all over the place, trying to kill him. Everybody's out to get him. And so in the middle of this deep distress, he cries out to the Lord, into your hands I entrust myself, I commit my spirit. You're the one that I will trust. And he had no no control over what was happening to him. Jesus wants us to understand that he is trusting in his Father, something that we need to learn to do. You know, it's fascinating to me how um, easy it is to blame our character. Some of you have heard me say this. Blame our character on external things. Why are you angry? I'm angry because my spouse said something mean to you, to me. Uh, Why are you depressed? I'm depressed because the stock market's down. Or my business isn't doing well. Why are you discouraged? I didn't get approved for my house loan. Right? Here's the reality. Circumstances do not determine your character. 
circumstances reveal your character. That's something every one of you should learn. Circumstances reveal your character. Nobody can make me angry. Why am I angry? Because I'm a fallen human. That's why. Oh, you could be a catalyst, but you can never be the cause. You can never own my anger. It's mine. Just like I can never own your anger. So if God really wanted to sanctify you and transform you and mature you into the image of his son, the greatest tool he has is the circumstances in your life. Because in order to be transformed, brokenness and sin has to float to the surface. Only when it floats to the surface can it be transformed into something better. And so the greatest way to transform is to expose what's inside. So I remember that in my marriage. Nancy can never make me angry. She may be the catalyst that God uses to expose what's on the inside, but it's on the inside of me. It's my brokenness. It's my anger. It's not hers. Does that make sense? That's just a good thing to remember. That's why the fruit of the Spirit is self-control, not circumstantial control. Job had no control over what God allowed Satan to do to him. Jesus has no control over what's happening here. David had no control over all the people that were chasing him around trying to end his life. So this psalm, Psalm 31, which Jesus quotes, is a psalm of deep trust intimately in the one who can rescue you. I've said many times, what drives you? I've asked that question. What drives you? I'm astounded at the fear I see around me. The fear because of all kinds of things from pandemic to politics, you name it. If you're, if you're living with fear, you're just a little bit too far away from the Lord because perfect love casts out fear. You can have peace or you can have fear, but you can't have both. One drives out the other. So I've said many times, if fear is what's driving you, you're just a little too far away from the Lord. Come a little closer, and that will begin to dissipate. It's fascinating, as I watch people, when the, when the pandemic first hit, I had a conversation with the elders where I told them that uh, I'm not going to quarantine and protect myself. I didn't become a pastor to do that. I became a pastor to be with the flock. I do not believe in reckless faith, but I certainly believe in risky faith. And I certainly don't mind being risky. I've been in hospitals several times on COVID floors, and they tell me what to do. I wear what they tell me to wear. Okay? And I went 11 months, almost 12. And then I got COVID. It's one of the jokes of the Lord. One of the ironies. Okay? And if it was my time... Oh, I didn't want to go. I certainly don't want to get COVID. I didn't want to be in ICU. But if it was my time, was I ready to meet the Lord? Yeah, I'm ready to meet the Lord. That was never the question. The question was, I like breathing. <laughs> and I'm a little panicked when I can't breathe. And so they took care of that. I wasn't afraid of meeting the Lord. That's never been the question. Just last week, I, was, uh, um, one of the, I went to pray with somebody who's having surgery. 
And so I got to the hospital, and they wouldn't let me in. You can't come in. Why can't I come in? Because of the COVID regulations. I said, well, the, the governor signed a health order that said pastoral ministry is critical. So I'm exempt. I'm allowed in. No, that's our procedure as a hospital. That's our policy. You can't get in. And I said, okay, I just want to make sure I'm clear that we're understanding each other and that you're telling me so in language that it makes sense to me. The governor has signed a health order that says pastoral ministry is essential and critical. You have somebody on the other side of that door that has specifically requested me to come pray with them as their pastor, and you're not going to let me in? Is that what you're telling me? This nurse, to her credit, said, "Uh, I'm going to go talk to my supervisor. Do you mind talking to her? I'd love to talk to her. Two minutes later, the same nurse came out and said, we're going to make an exception. Great. Great. I do not mind being risky. But I won't ever be reckless. And there's a big difference. Risk, faith by definition is risk, not security. Because you're stepping into the unknown where you've never gone. And Jesus gives us a picture right here of stepping into the unknown for him. Death. Into your hands. I trust my spirit. I am entrusting myself to you. Okay, then we have one more clue. And this is actually a pretty fascinating one. It comes out of Luke chapter 9. He's on the Mount of Transfiguration. You may remember the stories there with Moses and Elijah. Okay, Luke chapter 9, verse 28. About eight days after uh, Jesus said, he just said, Truly I tell you, some are standing right here who will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. About eight days after this, he took Peter and John and James with him and went up onto the mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glory. I always wondered how they knew it was Moses and Elijah. They didn't have pictures back then that I knew of. Anyway, Moses and Elijah appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. The word departure there is the Greek word exodus. Now, I have said repeatedly that the exodus is, a, is, a, is an archetype. It's a prototype. It's a grand picture of what Jesus is going to come to do, what the new covenant is all about, and what salvation looks like. He delivers them from slavery to sin and brings them in, I mean, slavery to Egypt, and brings them into freedom. Okay? So listen to what Paul says in Romans 6. This is the great passage on baptism. Jumping right in the middle. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. The exodus becomes the picture of us being set free. The whole genesis of my book was Romans 5. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. But in order to be given freedom, you have to be let out from underneath that tyranny, that horrible, despicable master called sin. And so the Exodus is a picture in the Old Testament of where we're headed. And Jesus lives it out right here in front of our very eyes because he is now uh, leaving. He is 
um, leaving a broken, fallen world. He's giving us a picture. That's his exodus. So this forms the basis for Paul's argument that that's what happens to us when we turn to him. We are now set free from slavery to sin. Therefore, he can ask the question, so why do you keep sinning? You don't have to. The problem is we don't know any other way. And that's what maturing is all about, learning not to sin, learning to say no, because everything in our being has been taught that way because that's what's normal to us. By the way, uh, pay attention on the website and the emails. We have the Baptism Sunday coming up. And if you're interested in baptism, then talk to one of us. And um, we will make that happen. So Jesus' final prayer on the cross is one of total submission and peace. Not fear and anxiety. He made it through the big testing. He says, Father, I entrust myself to you. I entrust myself to you into your hands. I commit my spirit. And that's a picture of what we should all be like in our struggles. Struggle is good. It's good. I've said several times that that it's a gift. It's an act of grace. Because when pain comes your way, you've got three options. You can shake your fist at God. It's okay to do that. You can live in denial, turn to drugs, alcohol. It's probably not a good idea to do that. But you can live in some form of denial. But as a Christian, you always end up with number three, turning to the Lord with humility. The world can't do that. Not very well. That's why we're here is to help them. The world usually goes to denial, some form of addiction, or anger, shaking your fist. I've seen both so many times, can't even count them anymore thousands of times. But for us, we always have that other option because of the Spirit. And God is patient. Job ends up shaking his fist at God until God steps in and quizzes him. And then he humbles himself. We see that story all through the Scriptures. Those who know the Lord end up over there in that better place, the third place. So Jesus' final prayer is one of total submission with peace, trusting his Father. The anxiety that I felt um, in ICU was because I couldn't breathe, not because of death. That wasn't the concern. I just like breathing. <laughs> A couple more things in the story. The centurion was the one who was responsible to oversee the crucifixion. He has a very unique perspective because he's standing right there and watching all this happen. What we've been doing for the last few weeks, standing at the foot of the cross, up close. And what does he say when he finally sees it? No more mocking this time. Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered for the spectacle, they beat their breasts and went away. They, They didn't care. All those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. 
We're not told why they stood at a distance because at the beginning of it, they're up close. You can say, uh, mother, woman, here's your son. But now they're standing a little further away. It could be that because of what we see in Psalm 22, Psalm 110, Isaiah 53. He's now disfigured beyond all reasonable humanity. Bones are out of joint. Can no longer breathe. And this Isaiah 53 says he was disfigured so much that people turned their faces away. And it could be that they didn't leave. They just, maybe they couldn't take the sight. Maybe they couldn't take the sight. It's one of my questions when I get to eternity. How's your trust coming? How much fear do you live with? Anxiety. You've all been there. I've been there. That's human. That's part of it. You don't have to stay there. That's the beautiful news about the new covenant. The house is being built. The blueprint of Leviticus is coming to life. The Holy Spirit's there. And Jesus gives us a picture. He gives us, a, he shows us that we don't have to stay there. If you're feeling that level of anxiety, that just means you're a little bit too far away from the cross. That's what it means. It's not meant to judge or criticize you. It's meant to say you have a way out. Step closer to the Lord. Perfect love then begins to drive that fear out. It's a good place to be. Father, thank you once again. We, we say it every week how grateful we are. Thank you that you didn't abandon us. You gave us a blueprint and sent your spirit to build this wonderful house of which we're a part of. Lord, help us. Thank you for another day of life. Help us as a church today. Bring honor to your name especially around, around everybody, but those that don't know you that we care about, friends, neighbors, coworkers, relatives. Help us to, to be that shining light. In your son's name, we pray Jesus because we believe in him. Amen. This uh, concludes the end of our live streaming portion. For those of you online, thank you so much for joining us. Have a blessed Sunday.